pleasure to uh, be here. Uh, so uh, I went to High Street Mall, uh, which is a mall in Abbotsford off the highway um, a few weeks ago. Uh, if you haven't been there before, it's a great example of how if you're planning something, you should probably go to the thing that you're going to build on because all of the nice views, the stores there are like London Drugs and PetSmart have the views and all of the restaurants with patios have a view of the highway. Um, and so when you're sitting in the restaurant on the patio, you're like, the person did not actually come physically to look at the site that they were going to build on of where to put the stores. Um, anyways, uh, when I was there a few weeks ago, I saw this license plate uh, and I thought it was great. So it says skeptic on it, says no gods, no excuses. I thought that is a, like if you're committed enough to skepticism and there being no gods and no excuses to get a license plate and a bumper plate, that's like, that's a defining thing for your life then, right? Like not, not all of us are as uh, willing to put our like life motto on our vehicles. Um, if that's your car, um, thanks for letting me use this picture, by the way, <laughs> and hope you enjoyed High Street. Um, but we all have a phrase or a idea that will dominate the rest of our thinking or how we live our lives. So we might not have actually sat down and wrote it down on a piece of paper, but we all have this overarching idea that will govern how we live our lives. So maybe it is something to the effect of uh, pursue success in your particular field of work because then you will make a name for yourself. Or maybe it is uh, find the love of your life, the soulmate, who will fulfill your every hope and dream. Or maybe it is if I have the right amount of kids who do the right amount of things in life, who succeed where I failed, then I will be a success in the world. We, we all have these thoughts that dominate our thinking and that compel us to live our everyday lives in, in light of those. We don't probably have them written down, but they're there. And often we will be faced with situations that will kind of force us to think about what is actually the reason why I'm here, right? Usually the big moments in our lives that force us to ask the question, what's the purpose for my life is not when you're in the middle of a road trip uh, down to Disneyland or when you're actually in a ride uh, at Disneyland. You're probably not thinking at that moment like, what's the purpose of my life? You're thinking, this is fantastic. Or if you're at like a Canucks game again for the first time or a concert for the first time after all the COVID measures, you're probably not in those high points of your life thinking to yourself, what is the purpose of my life? Usually, we ask the big questions about who am I and why am I here in the moments of our lives where we are being pressed in on by affliction, by pain, by suffering, by sorrow. It's in those moments when we lay our head down and we think to ourselves, what am I even here for? In our uh, text today, we have... First uh, Peter, and uh, in this letter, Peter is addressing a group of people who are living in the midst of a situation where they are feeling pressed in on, they are feeling afflicted, they are experiencing suffering and sorrow from the surrounding community and from just the normal goings-on of their life. And Peter is addressing these people in this letter. Here's our text for today. We're going to be looking at verses 10 through 12 in particular, but I want us to read uh, the 
part above it as well. So we're going to start in verse 3, 1 Peter chapter 1. And Peter's going to remind these people in the midst of affliction and sorrow about some really big truths about things that actually matter. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, your salvation, you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have been now announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. This is God's word. So, Peter's writing to a group of people who find themselves in a context where they are being afflicted. They are experiencing many sufferings and trials. And Peter reminds them the big point of your life, that overarching thought that should dominate all other thoughts, is that there is a God out there who loves you and who has saved you. And this God can be known. Or as uh, the great classic Christian document, the Westminster Shorter Catechism puts it, the big overarching thought of human life is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So Peter is addressing people in the midst of great sorrows and trials, and he is bringing to them some consolation. He brings to them gospel consolation in the midst of their various trials. So here's two that I want us to see in particular from verses 10 through 12. The first one is that we know God more. And the second one is that we are more loved. So we have consolation in the midst of our various trials. And they are that we know God more and we are more loved. So two points. The first one is a lot longer than the second one. Okay? So if you think to yourself during the first point, there's another one, don't worry, I'm aware, okay? We have gospel consolation in our various trials. First of all, we know God more. If the Westminster Shorter Catechism is true that the chief end of man is to know God and enjoy him forever, and I believe it is, then knowing God, relating with God is the source of our joy, our contentment, and our identity. Our knowledge of God is the thing that is above all the other things in our lives. Here's how Peter phrases it in chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. Concerning this salvation, 
The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Here's what Peter's getting at. The Old Testament prophets, the big names of the Old Testament, were looking forward to a day of a greater work from God. There was an awareness that God was going to do more in the future than what they were going to experience themselves. This is a really interesting idea because I think the majority of us, if we were asked, if we grew up in the church and we're familiar with some of the names from the Old Testament, if we were asked the question, who has a more full relationship with God? Uh, Abraham and Moses and David and Elijah or me? We would think to ourselves, I would rather trade places in my time in history with that particular set of experiences because of the moments, the experiences, those big wow experiences that they had in their lives. We think, man, that would have been a closeness, a fullness of a relationship with God better than what I experienced in my mundane everyday life of driving on the highway one to and from work. Moses' experiences were better, we think. I mean, it's not hard to think why that would be the case. Let's, let's do a little bit of a recap of some of these big names and big events. Uh, Abraham, old guy, old wife, no kids, living with his family. The God of the universe comes to him and says, here's the deal. I'm going to give you and your barren wife a, uh, a, a whole set of family coming out through you guys. And I'm going to give you a land for yourself. You just have to leave everything that you know to be true and come and follow me. And I'm going to give you all of these promises. We think, okay, that's a pretty big experience, right? They have the kids, they have the experience, big moment. Or Joseph in the book of Genesis. Joseph's one of my favorite characters. He's the little brother of a bunch of older brothers, and he's kind of a punk, and his brothers don't really like him, probably for good reasons. He seems like he doesn't quite know how to read the room at some times. Anyways, they get really tired of him. And they eventually sell him into slavery in Egypt. And Joseph, as he grows up in this context, uh, he's, I don't know, he kind of learns how to read the room. He actually becomes kind of a charismatic, likable guy to the point where he actually uh, rises to a place of prominence in the country of Egypt. And the plot twist of Joseph's story is that the very same brothers who abandoned him and sold him into Egypt are now coming to Egypt because there's a widespread famine and Egypt has all the storehouses of the food. And who's the one in charge of opening the storehouses is little brother Joseph. And Joseph is like this deliverer that even though God or even though his brothers intended evil against him, God intended to use it for their good. And we think, man, what a story. What an experience of rising up into power in Egypt. And not only that, you get a technicolor dream coat. That's a cool life, we think to ourselves. Or Moses, 
right? He, uh, lineage, Israelite lineage, he uh, is a part of the Egyptian household, though. His family uh, preserves his life, and Pharaoh's daughter finds him in a little basket in the river, and she raises this little baby as her own, and he raises, uh, is raised up into this situation, and eventually he goes out into the wilderness. There's a bit of a backstory there, but while he's out there, he sees this burning bush of fire, and he goes to it, and it starts talking to him and tells him, I want you to get your people out of Egypt, and Moses goes, and he does it, and he has this 10-round battle with Pharaoh, and he goes to the Red Sea, puts a stick in the ground, water goes up, dry ground they walk on, there's fish and whales like hitting their head up against the water wall because they can't go through because the Lord has brought the waves up. Cool moments, right? Better than us driving on the freeway, yes? Elijah, the great prophet of God. Israel's turned their back on God. They are worshiping Baal, the God who's supposed to provide for the people. And in this moment of a a standoff, a showdown on Mount Carmel, just a mountain made of Carmel. It's amazing. No, Mount Carmel is the place where they were meeting and there's these prophets of Baal and the God that... Uh, of, the, of the land, and Elijah and all these prophets of Baal are doing their dancing thing, and they're trying to get fire to come down. They're doing all the tricks that they know how. Elijah just stands up there, and he's like, <clears throat> bring the fire, Lord, and whoop, cool moment. Big stuff. We think to ourselves, that seems like a more full experience of the living God than what I have. But... What Peter is saying is that we actually have the advantage. We in our time and place have the advantage of knowing God more fully than the big names and the big moments of the Old Testament. There's this theological idea called progressive revelation, or uh, you can think of it as this. It's like an increasing of knowledge as salvation history goes along. So we have uh, a little slide for you where you can see this visual. Matt, your pastor made this. He's multi-talented. You should love him dearly. Um, So as God's action in salvation history moves along, God reveals more of who he truly is to his people. So God shows himself to Abraham and Abraham knows a little bit about who God is. And then that goes on to Moses and God reveals a little bit more about who he is, moves on to King David. And now David and the people of Israel know a little bit more about who God is. God speaks through the prophet Isaiah and Isaiah knows a little bit more about who God is. Isaiah actually is one of the voices who says, look, God is not going to be able to use us the way he intended to because we keep and messing up. And so we need a suffering servant to come and die for our sins. We need a person to come and rescue us so that God can work through us in the way he intended to. Isaiah knew more than what David knew and what Moses knew and what Abraham knew. And then the apostles come on the scene and they know even more than what all the other ones knew. See, Matt was right. It was like off the screen knowledge of who God is based on God's action in History, as time has moved on, as salvation history progresses through time, our knowledge of God increases. So, knowing God, relating with God is the great source for our joy, our contentment, and our identity. And because of God's work in history, we understand now that the God who is there is 
triune. We didn't always know that, but now we do. I want to prove this to you. So as the storyline of the scripture goes, we know more about who God is. So what we're going to do is we're going to do a little bit of a Bible study time. If you're a note taker, I promise I'll go faster than what you can write. So Matt, in his kindness, has printed out this next section of the sermon as a hard copy handout. You can go to the Connect desk, pick up a copy of it for yourself. It has all the points and the scriptures on it, so you can bring that home with you. This is going to be a bit of a biblical overview of how God has revealed who he truly is as salvation history progresses along. So I'm going to ask a few questions, and then we're going to look at some Bible passages, and hopefully we'll have a good time together in these next few moments. First, a quote from a guy named Fred Sanders. He says this, The gospel is Trinitarian, and the Trinity is the gospel. Christian salvation comes from the Trinity, happens through the Trinity, and brings us home to the Trinity. The word Trinity is just a a Christian word that talks about how the God who is there is one, and that one God exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So if we were playing Jeopardy, the clue on the screen would say the Trinity, and you would need to buzz in and say, uh, who is the God of Christianity? In other words, how does the Bible explain that the God who is there is Trinity? We know that who God is because he's revealed himself to us through salvation history. So first question, who is God? Well, uh, We know that there is a God who is powerful and who creates. We can know this by looking out at the world around us and see there seems to be someone or something bigger than us who did all of this stuff. That's what Romans chapter 1, what the Apostle Paul notes, where he says, What may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Or in other words, people look around and they say, there's clearly someone or something bigger than just me who made all of this take place. So creation, the created world, is enough to know that there is a God that is there, but it is not sufficient to help us see who That God actually is. That's what Paul says in his letter to the Corinthians where he says, For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom, so through our ability to just perceive the world, did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Or in other words, you need to have someone tell you who is the God Who made all of this? Or what is the thing that is in charge of all of this? We can't just intuit that. It needs to be declared to us. And we know that God, we know who God is because he's revealed us to himself through his actions in history, in time and place. And we only know who this God is because he's actually told us. So Genesis chapter 22, God comes to Abraham for the second time. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time, and he said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this, so Abraham had faith and he followed God, and then God asked Abraham to sacrifice his one and only son, and Abraham was thinking to himself, "Uh, that seems like a bad idea if you want me to have a whole nation full of kids. 
because this is the one son you've given me, so why are we killing the one son that's actually going to start all of the family after? But he's willing to do what God called him to do. He brings his son up on the mountain, but the Lord intervenes and says, I don't actually want you to kill your son. I provided another sub, a sacrifice for you. And then the angel of the Lord comes, says, because you have done this, your willingness to obey, and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. So creation is enough to show us that there is a God who is there, but not enough to tell us who is this God who is actually there. We need him to tell us himself. And this God comes to Abraham and says, I am a God who makes and keeps promises. So now the question is, is what is this promising God's name? Abraham's offspring didn't know what to call this God other than the God of our father, Abraham. But Abraham actually does have offspring, a lot of them, and eventually they become hundreds and thousands of people in the land of Egypt. And God calls on a guy named Moses to try to rescue his people out of the land of Egypt. And Moses is talking to him at the burning bush, and he's saying to him, uh, Lord, this, or God of Abraham, this seems like a, a bad idea, but Genesis or Exodus chapter three, Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, well, what's his name? Right? If you know him so well, what's he called? What should I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation. Our English Bible doesn't pick it up quite as well, but that word there, Lord, is the Hebrew word Yahweh. So at the burning bush, God, for the first time in Israel's history, tells his people their name. I am Yahweh. They didn't always know his name was Yahweh, but now they do. Moses knows more about God than Abraham did. But the question is, if this promising God's name is Yahweh, is Yahweh the Trinity? I thought the whole point of this exercise was to show that the God of the Bible, the God who is there, is the triune God. See, here's what we know about the nature of God from the Old Testament, uh, we know that the Israelites believe that God is one. This is one of the core beliefs of the Israelite tradition. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, part of the classic theological statement of the Israelite people. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The oneness of God is an irreducible minimum, is a necessary belief in the Israelite worldview. What's also interesting, though, is that the Old Testament repeatedly seems to indicate that Yahweh, the one God, exists as a plurality. Let me show you from the very beginning of the Bible, verse 1 of Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. 
So was God hovering over the waters? Was the spirit of God hovering over the waters? Why would they make a difference in the language there? What's happening? There seems like there could be more than one going on here. Maybe not, but Genesis 1 continues. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds of the air and over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Us? Let us, the one God says? Seems a little bit vague, but there seems to exist a plurality in the oneness of God. David in Psalm 110 says, The Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, Adonai, which is another word for God, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So David says, so God said to my God, so who's, wait, I thought God was one. There seems to be some kind of plurality to the oneness of God, yes? But it's not clear what it actually is. See, the idea of Yahweh existing as one and a plurality is kind of like the idea of coming into a room that is pitch black and you just start walking into chairs and you stub your toe on the stage and you fall over on the pulpit. You are aware of things in the room, but there's not a definite point or a definite understanding of what those things in the room actually are. Or in other words, it's like coming into the room is like acknowledging that Yahweh is one, but then experiencing bumping into the things is like the kind of unclear, vague experience of there being more than just the oneness happening. So we need some clarity brought into the situation. We need a light to be turned on into the room, which leads us to the necessity of the incarnation of Jesus for knowing God truly. We only know who God is because he's revealed himself to us through history. And what we know about Jesus is that Jesus is God with us to save us. Matthew chapter 1, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, Joseph, in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you're to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. See, Jesus, who is God with us, is the light that shows that in the room, there actually exists a duality. There's more than just one. There's actually two. See, Yahweh is one God who eternally exists as father and son. Jesus makes this clear in Matthew 11. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal. And on a mountain where there was a big scene where uh, it's called the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus has this like moment where he looks completely bright and his disciples are trying to figure out what's going on here. A voice comes, Matthew 17. Jesus was still speaking when behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. A voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. So here's what we need to know. 
Jesus comes in and bursts light in to show us that Yahweh is father and son. A scandalous idea. We didn't always know this to be the case, but now we do. Yahweh, the one God of Israel, exists as father and son, but a duality does not make a trinity. Which is why it's necessary for the Holy Spirit to arrive for us to know God truly. We only know who God truly is because he's revealed himself to us through history. And the Spirit arrived. See, at Jesus' baptism, we actually see that the Trinity is involved in salvation history. Mark chapter 1. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven You are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. See, at the baptism of Jesus, we see Jesus, the Father's voice, and the Spirit descending, the three in one. You see, the Father sent the Son to show to us that Yahweh has always existed as Father and Son. And the Father and the Son together send the Spirit to show us that the Spirit, the Son, and the Father have always been the one God. Jesus is talking to his disciples in an upper room before he goes to be crucified. And he says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. And then later in that same discourse, Jesus says, but very truly I tell you, it is, good for your, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. See, Jesus is saying it's actually to the advantage of human history for me to leave the scene. We don't believe that to be true. If we had the option of Jesus beside us for all of our days or not, we would choose Jesus sitting beside us. Because when people are like, why are you a Christian? We'd be like, kabamo, Jesus. But Jesus says, no, no, look. It is to your advantage that I go away because then the Holy Spirit can come and now you'll know that the one God is triune. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. If the Spirit does not come, we do not truly know who is the God who is there. It's this Holy Spirit who empowers gospel proclamation. It's this Holy Spirit who enables our belief in the gospel. See, the Spirit completes the promise that Yahweh made. The nations are blessed through the offspring who is Christ. We didn't always know that the one God is eternally three persons, but now we do. Moses didn't know that. David didn't know that. Elijah didn't know that, but we do. God revealed himself to us in salvation history. The Father made a plan, the Son accomplished it, and the Spirit applies it to us and makes it possible for us to receive it. If people ever ask us, why do you believe in the Trinity? The Trinity is not even in the Bible. You can say to them, that's not true. Matthew 28, verse 19, Jesus says, baptize them in the name, one name, of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Yahweh has one name. God has one name. His name is Yahweh. And Yahweh is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We didn't always know this, 
but now we do. See, the gospel is Trinitarian, and the Trinity is the gospel. Christian salvation comes from the Trinity, happens through the Trinity, and brings us home to the Trinity. If the chief end of man is to know God and enjoy him forever, if knowing God, relating with God, is our source of joy and contentment and identity, the thought that governs all other thoughts, if that is true, then isn't it good news, my friends, that we know who God truly is? That's why Paul says, in the midst of your afflictions, be consoled by the reality that you know God more than the prophets did. We didn't always know exactly who God is, but now we do. He's Father and Son and Holy Spirit. See, isn't it good news that God placed us in human history where he did? Instead of looking back and wishing we had an experience like Moses, we can drive on Highway 1 and think to ourselves, but I believe in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That belief won't make our problems go away, but it will provide a consolation in the midst of it. Here's a second gospel consolation for us. It's a lot shorter. We are more loved. We can have gospel consolation in the midst of our trials because we are more loved. Here's why I say that. First Peter chapter 1, verse 12. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you. And the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. What an interesting little phrase Peter adds on at the end, hey? This thing, this salvation history that the prophets were talking about that we now experience is something that angels like to look at. In the same way, we like to turn on a football game and watch it, or we like to turn on a musical and watch it. We long to look at the story that is taking place on the football field or the story that's taking place on the stage. The angels long to look at the story that is salvation history for God's image bearers. So I don't have time to do a whole theology of the angels. Matt does next week. So he... Uh, No, I don't think he's going to talk about that. Uh, But here's a few things about what we know that the angels do. Uh, We know that the angels worship God. We know that the angels are servants or ministers from God. And we know actually from the book of Hebrews that angels serve humanity. So Hebrews chapter 1 says, Aren't they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? It's this idea that angels have a role, not just of worshiping God in heaven, but angels actually have a job to help God's children. So anyone who's ever thought about like the guardian angel concept, kind of seems biblical. That there are these beings that God sends to help his children. So I don't know if you have any story of where you're like, I think I met my guardian angel. I think I met mine. Okay, you ready for this story? So I was 12 years old. It was summertime and I hit my head. I passed out and I hit my head really hard. And um, there weren't a lot of people around me. And there was this woman, very kind woman, 
long brown hair, all brown clothing, and she's sitting beside me as I'm on the ground, and she's stroking my hand, saying, they'll come soon. And then out came the people to come and help this 12-year-old boy who fell down and hit his head really hard. And I was like, where's that lady? What's her name? And they're like, there was no lady. When we came to you, you were alone. (gasps) (laughs) Who was it? Guardian angel? Concussed (laughs) 12-year-old? Both? I don't know. Look, maybe that was the guardian angel, maybe it wasn't. That's not really the point. The point is that God has beings that he sends to help his children. And yet God loves us more than the angels. So why do I say that? Well, we know that because in Peter's second letter that he writes, he says these words, God did not spare angels when they sinned, but he cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. See, my friends, humanity is unique among God's creation. Humanity holds a special place in the heart and plan of the God who is there. See, when the angels fell, Satan and his followers fell, they rebelled against God, they were condemned forever. No second chance Now cue the scene in the garden with Adam and Eve, and they eat the fruit they're not supposed to eat. And the angels are looking at this and probably thinking to themselves, here it comes. Condemnation, no second chance. That's how God is with the beings he creates. And what does God do? He comes to the woman in the garden and says, a child from you will crush the head of the serpent. I will save my image bearers. And the angels looking at this scene from heaven are saying, What? That's not how you roll. You just give justice to those who rebel against you. And God says, yes, I am just against sinners, but I am also merciful towards my image bearers. And the angels say, how are you going to make this work? How how are you going to save for yourself these rebellious people? And he says, just watch me. I'm going to have a guy named Abraham. And from him will come a nation. That nation will become... Slaves, and they'll be redeemed through a guy named Moses. That nation will walk in the wilderness, but they'll become a nation with a king named David. There'll be a prophet named Isaiah who will point forward to a savior named Jesus. And the angels long to look at this story of a merciful and just and gracious God. We are more loved than the angels. God himself, the eternal son of God, became Jesus of Nazareth so that he could live the image-bearing experience in its perfection, die for our sin in our place, rise victoriously from the grave, ascend to the right hand of the Father where he reigns as the king of the cosmos, where he'll return again to make all things new and his image bearers will be recipients of joy and peace and contentment for eternity because of the God who is there. Now, that truth doesn't make our problems go away. The afflictions are still there. But it does provide a consolation. Not only do we know God more, but we realize that we are more loved than we could ever grasp or imagine. Let me pray for us. 
Our Father, we're thankful for your love to us. We're thankful mostly that you show us your kindness perfectly in your Son, Jesus. And you've given us your Spirit so we can understand that truth. So our Father, we pray that in the midst of our sufferings and experiences and trials, Lord, would you have your kingdom come and your will be done in our lives? And would you cause us to find consolation in the good news that we have a God who is there who loves us more than we could ever grasp or imagine? You're better to us than we recognize, and you love us just because you do. So we pray that you would get all the glory from how we live our lives. We pray this for the fame of Jesus and in his name. Amen.